Thank you, Philip and Caroline, for reading, and thank you for the band for leading us uh, so thoughtfully there as we come to explore uh, God's Word together. Well, it's almost summertime. I'm sure you're planning where you're going to head, what you're going to do, how you're going to relax, and all those other things that come with holidays, not to mention the mild panic of packing and throwing things into a bag and actually getting to the airport. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a couple of days off and headed to London just for the day. And as usually, uh, apart from shopping and a few bookstores, uh, I did find myself where I always find myself when in London, and that was in the the Tate Gallery. Uh, There's so much there that I enjoy, but one section in particular uh, that I love to visit is the pre-Raphaelite section um, of all the kind of areas of art is the pre-Raphaelites that probably uh, have had a lasting impact on my thinking and reflecting over the years. And then I came home and was reading a bit of John Stott, the late John Stott, and discovered that he too had a bit of an interest in the pre-Raphaelites and in his book, uh, The Cross of Christ. He talks about one painting in particular uh, by Holman Hunt, who is one of the pre-Raphaelites, and it was called The Shadow of the Cross. So I wonder for a few seconds this morning if you and I might take a journey into this painting together and to discover some of the meaning and the impact behind it. So Hunt's painting is called The Shadow of Death and it depicts a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Stripped to the waist, Jesus stands by a wooden trestle on which he has put down his saw. He lifts his eyes up towards heaven And the look on his face is one of either pain or ecstasy or both. He also stretches, raising both arms above his head. As he does so, the evening sunlight streams through an open door and seems to cast a dark shadow in the form of a cross on the wall behind him. Where his tool rack looks like a horizontal bar on which his hands have been crucified. The tools themselves reminding the viewer of that fateful hammer and nails. In the left foreground, a woman kneels among the wood chippings, her hands resting on her chest. We cannot see her face because she's averted it. Uh, But we know that she is Mary. She looks startled, or so it seems, at her son's Christ-like shadow on the wall. Some say that the pre-Raphaelites have a reputation for sentimentality. Uh, Yet they were serious and sincere artists, and even Holman Hunt said that he himself was trying to do battle with the frivolous art of the day. And while the idea might be historically fictitious, it is theologically true. Because from Jesus' youth, we see, indeed from his birth, that this shadow of the cross is ahead of him all the time, and his death being his ultimate mission. I wonder if you might indulge me a moment more and keep on this London theme as we move from the the Tate Gallery and take a wander around to St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, Borrowing again from Stott here. Imagine a stranger visiting St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Being brought up in a non-Christian culture, he knows next to nothing about Christianity. Yet, as he walks along Fleet Street... He's impressed by the grandeur of the building's proportions and marvels that Sir Christopher Wren could have imagined such an edifice 
after the Great Fire of London in 1666. As his eyes attempt to take it in, he cannot help but notice the huge golden cross that dominates the dome. Once inside, he discovers that there's a service taking place, a bit like our service here this morning, and decides to stay and to see what's happening. The man sitting beside him, he notices, is wearing a cross on his lapel, and the woman across the aisle seems to be wearing a cross on a necklace. His eyes now rest on the colorful stained glass windows, and time and time again, this cross keeps dominating all that is going on. The congregation stand to sing, and uh, the words they sing are, When I survey the wondrous cross, familiar to many of us, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. The stranger leaves the cathedral impressed yet puzzled. The repeated insistence by word and symbol on the centrality of the cross has been striking, yet questions have arisen in his mind. Why all this talk about the cross? You see, the cross is central to all we do here this morning, and we will be reminded of that later as we come to the table to remember Christ's death. The cross that frees us from all our past and enables us to move forward into the future with hope and with security. But yet, the crucifixion of Christ took place six hours on one Friday. To the casual observer, there was nothing unusual about this Friday. Six hours of routine, six hours of the expected, six hours one Friday, enough time for a shepherd to tend to sheep, a housewife to get her house in order, or a doctor to help a woman give birth. Six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., six hours one Friday. Take yourself, if you will, back all those centuries to Jerusalem, and you would witness the life and work of a very special man, a man who who no one seems to understand. The doctrines he taught were thought to be dangerous. They challenged the order of things. The Jewish leaders were incensed by his disrespectful attitude to the law, while the Romans heard that he was proclaiming himself as king of the Jews and challenging the authority of Caesar. To both groups, Jesus appeared to be a revolutionary thinker and preacher, and some saw him as a revolutionary activist as well. So profoundly did he disturb the status quo that they were determined to do away with him. In fact, they entered into an unholy alliance uh, with one another in order to do so. In the Jewish court, a theological charge was brought against him, blasphemy. In the Roman court, the charge was political. He was perceived as a threat to law and order, and that just could not be tolerated. Crucifixion, as I'm sure you don't need me to tell you, is probably one of the cruelest uh, forms of execution ever practiced. For it deliberately delayed the death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery. 
This was not a nice death. Pain, blood, agony. This death was not a quick drift off to sleep. It was a screaming reality. The clock strikes 12 and we see a city covered in darkness. A darkness which will last for three hours. The clock strikes three and Jesus cries out with a loud shout, My God, my God, why did you abandon me? By the time Christ screams these words, he is hung on the cross for six hours. Around nine that morning when people were starting a day's work, Jesus finds himself at the base of Skull Hill. The man who had spent years journeying from town to town to spread his message of salvation and hope in God finds himself setting out on his final journey up the Mount of Crucifixion. A soldier pressing his knee on his forearm to drive a spike through one hand, then another, then the feet. As the Romans lifted the cross, they unwittingly placed Christ in the very position in which he came to die between God and man. A priest on his own altar, a cross. Noises intermingle on the hill, Pharisees mocking, swords clanging, dying men groaning. Jesus scarcely speaks. And when he does, diamonds sparkle against velvet. He gives his killers grace and he gives his mother a son. And he answers the prayer of a thief and asks for a drink from a soldier. Then at midday, darkness falls like a curtain. At noon, the whole country was covered with darkness and it lasted three hours. This is a supernatural darkness, not just a casual gathering of clouds which seems to obstruct our view of the sun. This was three hours of blanket darkness. Merchants in Jerusalem light candles, soldiers ignite torches, parents worry, people everywhere are asking questions. Of course, the sky is dark. People are killing the light of the world. The universe grieves. In Amos chapter 8, we read that God said that on that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The sky weeps and the lamb bleats. Remember the time of the scream. About three o'clock, Jesus cried out. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the hour of temple sacrifice. Less than a mile east, a finely clothed priest leads a lamb to the slaughter, unaware that his work is futile. During the week, uh, I was listening to a song by Shufjan Stevens. I think I got that out just about right. And uh, about Abraham sacrificing his son on the altar. Uh, and in that moment when he has lifted the knife to plunge it into his son, Jesus, or God sends an angel and it reminds him that no more sacrifice, just a ram until Jesus comes. Little did that priest know as he led that lamb to be sacrificed that heaven wasn't looking on the lamb of man, but the lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A weeping sky 
a bleeding lamb, but more than anything, a screaming Savior. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Some have said when interpreting this that that loud voice could be translated roar. Or to put it simply, soldiers aren't cupping their ears asking Jesus to speak up. In Joel chapter 3, we read, The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. These six hours we see fulfillment after fulfillment of ancient scripture. In those six hours, everything is done to the letter, as had been revealed by God in days of old. Christ lifts his heavy head and eyelids towards heaven and spends his final energy crying out, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? There it is, the hardest word, abandoned. The house no one wants, the child no one claims, the parent no one remembers, the savior no one understands. He pierces the darkness with heaven's loneliest question. My God, my God, why did you abandon me? And in one moment when the Savior breathes for the last, he yields himself totally to death. Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but a father for love. All of this taking place in six hours one Friday. Six hours that stand out like a mountain in human history. Six hours that have been discussed, debated, and deciphered for 2,000 years. Six hours in which eternity entered the darkest caverns of man. The moments when the navigator descended to the deepest, darkest waters to leave an anchor for his followers. What does that Friday mean? For the life blackened with failure, it means forgiveness. To the heart scarred with futility, it means purpose. And for the soul looking and questioning and doubting, it means deliverance. Six hours one Friday, as we come to remember at the table this morning. Amen.